Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the sidebar conversation regarding Anthony Huber character evidence, as well as by the testimonies of the Kindry brothers and the police officers who allowed Kyle Rittenhouse to walk past them immediately after the shootings. Our discussion of this week's trial events is coming up right after the break. 
and could have made a more compelling argument by keeping it narrow. But when he basically acceded to the characterization of the testimony as character evidence, then I think the judge is absolutely right. Yes, he can introduce it, but he does so at his peril because it's perfectly fair for the defense then to be able to question a witness about whether her opinion would be that Anthony Huber was heroic, that he was a kind of heroic peacemaker in view of the fact that he had a record for assaultive crimes. It also was a window into the tightrope that the prosecution was walking with now all three of the defendants, having some insight into what Huber's criminal record was, the fact that he'd actually served time in prison for these domestic incidents. None of them is perfect. But here's the thing. Prosecutors very seldom have perfect witnesses or perfect victims even, not in you know your average day in criminal court. So that shouldn't be so surprising or unsettling to a seasoned prosecutor. You know, on balance, I'm surprised that the prosecution even tried to offer this evidence. That's kind of foolhardy because they don't want to paint Anthony Huber as anything other than a guy on a skateboard. He doesn't need to have been a peacemaker in the past. They didn't need that. They could have argued that inference based on the facts of this case. He was not an armed individual. He was plainly unarmed and he's on a skateboard. And there's actually kind of a good stereotype, you know, a good sort of cultural understanding of what a guy on a skateboard is. Those are, you know, sort of countercultural hipsters, not bullies, not vigilantes. So I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure why they felt they needed that. I thought the great aunt was a good witness without any of that. And on the other hand, maybe they thought, you know, the prison part was the bad part because that suggests that the underlying criminal conduct was serious enough to merit a prison sentence. When I first heard it, I thought, eh, you know, these are the kinds of things that happen sometimes between siblings and they read more harshly in a police report than maybe they actually happened in real life. But they sort of piled on each other. And in the end, they were not helpful to the prosecution, his history of criminal conduct. However inconsequential, you know, one or the other might have been altogether, it wasn't good. Let's move on to the Kindry brothers. Why don't we deal with them both together and then we can break them down separately? What did you make of their testimony for the prosecution? I experienced it as a kind of comic relief, I have to say. My free associations are either the movie Dumb and Dumber or some of the comedy routines of Cheech and Chong. I don't know really what the purpose was in calling these two guys. Now, they weren't great witnesses for either the prosecution or the defense. You know, I understand what the point was in the prosecutor calling. The the point was only that neither brother, that that family business that owned Car Source and Car Doctor, never enlisted any help from Rittenhouse or anybody else. That was the point. It got so far afield into the amount of damage done, whether there was insurance coverage, whether, you know, the photograph with Kyle Rittenhouse at all was reflected a friendship or association or whether it was just a kind of odd thing. I don't know. It felt to me like it was much ado about nothing. I don't know if you had the same experience in watching it. 
Well, I actually felt that like much of this trial testimony, it felt like it on balance was positive for the defense and a negative for the prosecution. And here's why. I thought that Sal Kindry, the first of the brothers to testify, who had no official association with the businesses, he had his own car dealership in Milwaukee. I felt that he was on balance a non-entity in terms of affecting either side's narrative. But you did have the image of him pictured with all of the other AR-15 bearing individuals, including Kyle Rittenhouse. But I thought that the testimony of his brother, Sam Kindry, was particularly damaging for the prosecution because he went out of his way to deny having any concern about insurance to indicate that he called anyone to help with the property, including one of the former employees. And yet he'd given an interview where he said that the damage was around $2.5 million, that the insurance company had denied his claim initially. And, you know, when asked as the inventory manager for the car source locations, whether he did anything to try to secure the property, he said he did move a bunch of the cars and that he called 911, but that he did nothing else. He called no one. And it was a mystery to him why all these people showed up, including a former employee to protect the place. I felt like that's so strained credulity. And on top of that, his demeanor in avoiding questions, asking the questions to be restated three, four, five times sometimes, I felt like it all worked against the prosecution and for the defense. Well, that's interesting. I guess because they were called as prosecution witnesses, that might be how a jury experiences the testimony, that neither one on balance was a very compelling witness. The first guy felt irrelevant to me, though. I agree with you that defense, you know, certainly loved the photo because it looks like one of the owners or, you know, a member of the family that owned those car lots was palling around with and there was a text from Kyle Rittenhouse to Sam Kindry on his phone. Yeah, the defense was not happy with him either because, you know, their whole cross-examination was, come on, you endorsed this, you invited it, and now you're backing off because you're afraid of your own liability. You know, here's the thing. It just, he didn't know it was $2.5 million in damage until after everything was said and done. So he wasn't calling them in, you know, if you take where the defense is coming from, he wasn't calling them in for that purpose. He came across as hapless and evasive and a little bit slow, unless that was an act. It's like he couldn't answer a simple question with a simple answer. Now, sometimes the questions weren't that simple, but the judge was jumping in and was getting impatient as well, which is a not, it's not a good look. But maybe you're right on balance. It was better for the defense than the prosecution. I don't think the prosecution needed to call them to say they weren't invited. It's not, it's not an element of the offense. It's not like Rittenhouse was accused of trespass. So, and they had to have prepared those witnesses beforehand. They had to know what they were testifying about and how they would come across. I very much think that it was much more about obfuscation and less about stupidity. Like, I do not think that those guys were hapless. I think both those guys were very well coached by their civil attorneys in protecting the interests of the company and protecting their assets. And I think that the defense was on to that and called it out very effectively, even if they were frustrated in the process. 
okay, you know, f- fair enough. I mean, I'm sure that's what they'll argue in closing is that these guys very much welcomed Kyle Rittenhouse and his compatriots and were happy to have them. And that that's why you see a happy photo. And that's why a guy in a BMW would give people a ride. I mean, that's a pretty easy argument to make and that they would deny it because somebody gets killed after they invite a person on their property. Sure. You know, I think that's a good argument. I can't believe even the look of them. Wouldn't you think, though, that a prosecutor... The look and the sound, wouldn't the prosecutor have prepared them or upon preparing them and hearing how evasive they were going to be, wouldn't you make a different decision? Yeah, I don't understand why they were called as witnesses. I think that on paper, okay, they didn't invite Kyle Rittenhouse to protect the property. I think you read that on paper, maybe that, you know, is going to work for your argument and for your narrative. But once you interview those guys, it's got to be clear to you that they're going to be problem on the stand and they're not going to be helpful. Right. I mean, here's what I kept thinking, you know, couldn't they have gotten a stipulation from the defense? So a stipulation is an agreement between the parties that if a particular witness were to testify, they would testify as follows. And the stipulation for these couple of brothers would be if a member of the family that owned car source and car doctor were called to testify, they would testify that they never asked or enlisted Kyle Rittenhouse to help them protect their property. The defense wouldn't disagree with that, but you know, maybe the defense would have called them is what it occurs to me. You know, I don't know, but they had to have done their own investigation. Maybe they would have called them then. Maybe they would have refused a stipulation, but I hope that the prosecutor at least tried to get that from the defense before having to call these guys. Even the way they were dressed was bizarre to me. If I was the prosecutor, I would prepare them thoroughly and B, I would tell them, you know, wear a dress shirt, wear a tie. You guys are owners of this business. The whole thing felt strange to me. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In the final part of our conversation, Abby and I discussed the testimonies of the police officers who allowed Kyle Rittenhouse to walk past them immediately after the shootings. So then we had the testimonies of officers Pep Moretti and Jason Krieger. What did you make of their contribution to the prosecution narrative? The police officers were certainly credible witnesses, you know, in terms of what they testified to, but the content didn't add very much, in my opinion. You know, one of the things that was well known to the public about this case was Rittenhouse walking down the street armed with a semi-automatic rifle slung over his shoulder and approaching police cars, you know, attempting to surrender and nobody stopping him. 
I mean, that was a really vivid image. Before I knew anything about the case, I knew about that because in my line of work, my immediate reaction was, oh my God, I can't imagine a world in which one of my clients who are disproportionately black and brown, because that's who gets caught up in the criminal legal system in the District of Columbia disproportionately, that if there had been a black or brown man with a gun slung around his shoulder had approached the police, I can't imagine the world in which they would wave that person on the way they waved Rittenhouse on. And, you know, I thought it was really interesting when the audio was played of people yelling, he just shot a guy, he just shot a guy, or words to that effect. And yet the police really didn't react until Rittenhouse was within five feet of the police car, apparently. Yes, I found their testimonies while self-serving about why they didn't treat him as a potential active shooter. I found their comments to be compelling in that they came across so many people with weapons that night that they were initially suspicious and careful about Kyle Rittenhouse because of the way that he alternated between putting his hands up and holding the weapon as if he could use it at some point, that once they discounted him as a potential threat, once they sprayed him with tear gas, they had a job to do, which was to go down and assess the wounded whom they saw from their vantage point up Sheridan Road. So I thought that they were credible in that regard, that they didn't treat Rittenhouse as a threat, that from inside their vehicles, they couldn't hear the person shouting as clearly as we could because the microphone was much closer to that person than they were. So while I was initially confounded by why they would blow past this guy with an AR-15 walking with his hands in the air, I felt like I understood where they were coming from and believed that they were telling the truth. Yeah, I understood better. But I think the surrealness of the way they described that evening and the crowds and that Rittenhouse wasn't unique in having an AR-15, that people were armed and carrying, you know, it began to feel understandable, I suppose, though, again, kind of surreal. I think the chaos helps the defense, though. It was a frightening evening. You could hear in the police testimony that they were on edge, on guard. I mean, they didn't overreact. They were incredibly restrained. But, you know, it sort of had an eerie feeling the way that they described the scene. Rittenhouse's approach, you know, Huber down. They arrive at the hospital. Rosenbaum pronounced dead. They told it in a kind of open, shocked way. They seemed younger than their age. And in their testimony, they still seemed kind of stunned and in awe of everything that happened. At least one of them said they'd, they'd never been in anything like that. They'd never seen Kenosha like that. They'd never been involved in any sort of investigation or any sort of incident that was like this. I think all of that helps the defense. Yes. And I completely take your point that once they got past their wariness of Rittenhouse because of the position of his hands on his firearm, and once they sprayed him with tear gas, it's hard to imagine that if he had been a black 17-year-old or a Latino 17-year-old, that they wouldn't have responded differently and taken much more 
proactive action to get him in a cop car and make sure that he wasn't a threat to anyone else. I mean, that's the surprising thing, that he wasn't taken into custody, whether or not he's charged initially with anything. But he's clearly a young guy who's carrying, you know, an AR-15. I don't know, you know, not familiar with the demographics of Kenosha. Would it have been different if, you know, he looked like a protester instead of a clean cut guy? I mean, was there some sort of self-referential bias going on between the police officers and this, you know, young white guy toting a gun and holding himself off as some kind of medic. I don't know. What if, you know, he'd been a ponytailed protester? I mean, certainly if he had been either brown or black, I think very different police response. And probably the cops knew that and they did the best they could to explain themselves. Yes. And again, I believe that their response was genuine, that once they realized that this guy was no longer going to be a threat to them, they moved on. But I don't think that they would have discounted his threat so easily had he looked different. Yeah, I think so, too. I like the idea that the police were more concerned with, you know, potentially saving life. If there were people who had been shot and they were wounded, I mean, I think that's excellent behavior to be more concerned about, you know, rescuing those folks, getting them to a hospital than, you know, apprehending somebody so long as they weren't an active shooter. And that wasn't what they were seeing. I get that. But still, maybe there was ambiguity in the way Kyle Rittenhouse was approaching the police. It didn't look that way to me from the videotapes I've seen. It looked like he was attempting to surrender. He did say that a lot of the people that were there with semi-automatic weapons that night had, for much of the evening, approached the police with their hands in the air. I know, but that's so strange. Why? Why? I thought that was so interesting and so strange. Well, but we actually saw it earlier in Rishi McGinnis's footage as he was following Ryan Balch and Kyle Rittenhouse down Sheridan Road as they crossed the street and they see a bearcat. They both put their hands in the air, you know, indicating that their hands are not on their weapons. They're carrying openly. So it was something that all of the armed individuals and most of those people with the semi-automatic weapons were people that were there to protect businesses. They weren't there as protesters. All of those people had the same response to the law enforcement that they that they encountered, which was to show that they're not a threat to law enforcement. That's what's so interesting to me. Now, this is, you know, outside of my experience, either personally or professionally. But is that what that means? You know, that you raise your hands in a kind of surrender or to show that you're not about to use your weapon? Or is it a white guy to white guy thing? Look, man, I'm good. I'm good. And your hands are up in a kind of motion of reassurance. I don't know. I've never heard of that as like a signal. But again, this is not my world. But it strikes me as weird that that's what guys would do upon seeing a police officer. It's, you know, is this the gun carrying analogy to you tighten your seatbelt when there's a police car behind you? Or are you take your foot off the accelerator a little bit? Or, I mean, that's what you do with a gun? I don't know. Well, before we leave, Abby, I've been asking this question at the end of each week for the last couple of weeks. Was there anything you heard this week that changed your opinion that the prosecution should have offered the defense a plea deal of some sort going into this case? Not this week's testimony, no. Most prosecutors, this kind of a context of a chaotic, scary, everybody's carrying guns, there are fires, and you've got three victims, each of whom is flawed. 
I think prosecutors think plea. How can I come away from this case getting a little piece of justice? I may not get everything I want, but let's you know look at the case with eyes wide open. I would add that the information that we got about Anthony Huber, while not admissible in the case, further reinforces the notion that the victims were you know far from perfect in this case. And so the one person that could be depicted as heroic turns out to be flawed. Well, we've got a ways to go, Abby, so we'll have to soldier through. Thank you again for joining us this week. Thanks so much, Carrie, for having me. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we begin our review of the testimony of Gage Grosskreutz, the last person who Kyle Rittenhouse shot and the only surviving complaining witness. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.